This is Slashers, your new favorite podcast about your new favorite horror media. My name is Jake, and with me, as always, are my esteemed colleagues, co-hosts, and cohorts, Doug and Adrian. Gang, say hello to the mutant goons from beyond. Hello, mutant goons. This is Doug. We're going to get synthesized, <laughs> right? Hey, guys, it's Aid. Happy week two of Pride Month. Yay. Let's get synthesized, synthesized. You won. Okay. They can't all be winners, gang. Sometimes jokes fail, just like me. Now, this episode is a great grab bag. I have, uh, we're doing a biography career retrospective on Wendy Carlos. We're also talking to Jennifer Aspinall, a woman who's of tremendous importance to both Doug and myself, given that Doug has a tattoo of Toxie, and I'm going to be getting a tattoo of Toxie through Jennifer. So stay tuned to find out what the fuck I'm talking about there. Now, uh, we had talked about this previously on our cruising episode when it comes to all of our LGBTQIA plus content. And I don't say that sarcastically. I try to be as inclusive as possible. I, In fact, if you want to look at our logo for this month, I did uh, four hours worth of research on flags and inclusivity and tried to make something that didn't just seem like, uh, you know, just slapping a rainbow. The digital stuff that's in the background of our June logo is actually Wendy Carlos's synthesizer. And I made it rainbow colored based on different panels on that device. And there's a bunch of Easter eggs in it, but I, I surveyed several people. So thank you very much. Everybody who responded, I know just to get these weird out of nowhere emails and be like, oh yeah, sure. I'll respond. And Carlos, Anthony, I hope you don't think that I reached to you just because you're gay. I reached out to you because you've contributed to our show. You've given us a lot of great feedback and you've been very involved. So I knew I could rely on Cameron. Great person as well. Now, I added this disclaimer at the other one, and I want to make sure I do so now. If in any way, when I discuss LGBTQIA plus content uh, or themes, anything, if I ever come across or any of us come across as insensitive, it's not our intention. And I invite the opportunity for you to come back and let us know. I would love to post a retraction and clarify anything. I want everybody to know that our goal in doing this content is not to capitalize on metadata and hashtags and trendiness. We're trying to raise voices up. And if you've ever felt marginalized, uh, we want you to know that you have a platform to speak. And I will absolutely entertain you if you engage me in civil discourse. Please don't talk to me the way I feel I deserve to be talked to as a lowly denizen of mental deficiency. Now, gang, do you know anything about Wendy Carlos? Mm, well, Wendy Carlos has scored a lot of music that if you didn't know who she was, well, you know, she... Uh Shining Clockwork Orange, just to name a few. Tron. Yeah. <laughs> and so what's interesting, we'll go through her movie discography, her other content, her discography separate and apart as just an electronic artist. I don't mean just an electronic artist, as in like it's not, in a, but separate and apart from cinema. It is incredibly extensive. And not on Spotify. So if you're looking, you're going to have to dig a little bit deeper. But there's a tremendous amount of really cool content, including a collaboration with one of my favorite songwriters of all time. Do you know who that is? Enlighten us. So since my wife and I have been together, I tell people that her favorite song of all time is Short People by Randy Newman. And my wife has just stopped arguing and just accepted it. And so when people ask, she says that it's Short People by Randy Newman because she knows I will correct her. And so the other day, we're listening to Albuquerque my favorite Weird Al song. And I was like, you know, uh, you could get me back and you could say this is my favorite song. She says, but it is your favorite song. And at this point in my life, 
Weird Al's Albuquerque, I think, is my favorite song. Wendy Carlos collaborated with one Weird Al Yankovic on a project, which is actually really cool. It's Peter and the Wolf. Mm. Mm. See, you're bringing in all the insight here. That's some good stuff. Are you are you picking all that up, listeners? Are your brain's overflowing like the Mars Attacks aliens with this knowledge? This is good stuff. Adrian, are you a fan of Weird Al? What do I have to say in order for no one to hate me right now? <laughs> the correct answer is absolutely. absolutely. And then you have to tell us your favorite song. Uh, What's your favorite? I don't know. The Albuquerque song? <laughs> I don't know. I would correct you, but it is his best song. Doug, do you have a favorite Weird Al song? Oh, yeah. I used to love um, Girls Just Want to Have Lunch. Yes. Yeah. I love all of his fat stuff, man. Yeah. Just eat it. Yeah, just eat it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so juvenile, but yet still so fun. I, I don't know how to put it there. He, you know, he, but he also made one of my favorite movies, which was a UHF classic movie. Literally, whenever I sit down to record our bits for B movie TV, I always think of UHF, and I'm like, yep. Like the fact is, is that a lot of this content would just be completely disregarded by many, but the people who it hits, it's like important to, and I really appreciate that. Now, shall I continue in the career retrospective of one Wendy Carlos? Yeah. So I'm just going to get this out of the way. Wendy Carlos is a trans woman. Boom. This is difficult in only so far as in her career. She does what's called switched on Bach. She was originally going to use her Moog synthesizer and do a, synth, you know, a complete synth project of all original music. But it was suggested to her by Rachel Elkine that she do covers because the synthesizer itself was so new at the time that you wanted to make sure that it was accessible. So she did Bach. It was released under Walter Carlos, and she had already been living under Wendy Carlos. From there on, that's you know, there were some clarifications there, and there you go. There's been some frustration, I will say. There was a recent biography that came out about her that she was not particularly fond of. It was Dr. Amanda Sewell, had written it and I had looked up and, and did some research through it and, and read excerpts of it. And then I read uh, Wendy Carlos's response, which was not very pleased with that biography at all, calling it sloppy, dull and dubious, which I can only imagine what she'll say about our episode because I myself am slovenly dim and devious. Ha ha. Synonyms on all three. And Thank I'm just dull. Much. Dull Doug. <laughs> So Doll dog. we all fit that uh, we all fit the uh oh no, no zone for Wendy Carlos. <laughs> but I don't want to portray her as anything that she's not. She is a musician as far as I'm concerned, and that's what I want to focus on. So she this is brilliant. She puts out Switched on Bach, which becomes kind of a counterculture hit. There's some interesting allegations as far as like there being like a bowl of joint and it being very counterculture at the Columbia lunch party and stuff. And, you know, it, it's very avant-garde, right? And when you think avant-garde, you think of one Stanley Kubrickian, right? Kubrick, I know. He was doing Clockwork Orange. And so it was recommended to Carlos, hey, you know, you, you know who Bach is. I'm pretty sure you know who Beef Oven is. And Beef Oven is a huge part of Clockwork Orange. So maybe they send over Switched on Bach and some of the original works and boom, they start working together. Ha-cha-cha. For our cool, listeners, right? he means Beethoven. Uh, no, I'm a big fan of Bill and Ted's <laughs> Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey. I even like Face the Music. So it's Beef Oven. Thanks very much. Sorry. Uh, man, You're not going to speak for me, a heterosexual, <laughs> cisgendered white male, okay? I, I'm i sick of giving up my voice because I'm being canceled. Blah, blah, blah. 
Uh, that cancel culture. Yeah, but you know, I don't know. Hey, look at this keyboard that Wendy Carlos has here. It looks like uh, she she could be ruining craft work all by herself. Do you know what I mean? Just doing all that yeah. music there. <laughs> Computer love. I know exactly who craft work mm, yeah, is. The robots. You sexy beast. Yeah, look at that. Look at that. I'd get carpal tunnel pulling those cords out anyway. Yeah. Some hard stuff. Well, and that's the huge element. People think are very dismissive of electronic music because it's accessible now. It's easy. Anybody can put a MIDI keyboard in their garage band and hoarly burly do the, some fruity loops. Wendy had to create sounds to put in. Literally, the system was so delicate. She was one of the ones who influenced Moog to actually include pressure-sensitive gauges to imitate the way the music does, uh, actual like music. And so she was classically trained all the way through college. So much so, she ends up actually being the orchestral maestro for Tron, not just electronic, but also a 105-piece orchestra because she was at the producer. She's like, hey, you know, like I can do this too. A little bit of ego and attitude with some people particulars but i think we can all agree tron is groundbreaking as is going back a clockwork orange what do you guys think of that soundtrack oh this uh, which one a clockwork orange tron yes. i think they're both amazing like i said but i think in my opinion the one for clockwork orange really like that without the music mm. that movie wouldn't be the same nope it absolutely not it wouldn't emote all those emotions you wouldn't feel the same way for the characters so yeah all that just the like yeah that movie when i think of clockwork orange the first thing that pops in my mind is the the, the original soundtrack the score what about you aid well i love a clockwork orange i still have a vhs copy of it and it's like the heaviest videotape ever because i think it was made i don't even know what with <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. so no i i think that when you told me about her because you had discussed her with me a long time ago you mentioned her and i had no idea yeah. who this person like i didn't know and so the fact that she's a woman doing these things for a film like a clockwork orange like i think that's just amazing that is so badass in my opinion so i think that's really cool and 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 even with the with the shining same thing that music gets to you right like you you know when you hear it it kind of like triggers something and you have that that icky feeling yeah Everything is kind of familiar and askew. And there's a lot going on in A Clockwork Orange. Have you either of you read the book? I have not, no. Yeah. So it deviates. A lot of people seem to exaggerate how much it deviates from Kubrick's film. It's, it's close enough. Visually, I don't necessarily think of Malcolm McDowell. I don't necessarily think of the costumes the way they are. In fact, the, there's some glaring differences in the costumes. The story structure is the same. But when you read the book after you've seen the movie, the thing that sticks with you and sticks in your mind is that fucking music. That music, that version of it because it's it still has this analog quality to it doesn't sound so crisp but it's obviously kind of futuristic and it just feels so it sets the backdrop for this weird even the language of that film you know and the book itself where they're using the slang where it has this weird antiquated nature to it familiar but then also very weird and just dissociative it's amazing and did you know there are actually songs that weren't included in the film <gasps> no yeah so the pop purcell and the stately purcell were not included as so one is an adaptation of the music for the funeral of queen mary i actually i i was able to find those online pretty cool pretty cool or recreations of them. I'm not exactly sure if they were the originals, but just thought that was interesting. So she works with Kubrick, goes well. Hey, sign you up for The Shining. Peace out. So she does the Clockworks 
which is a song that's in the elevator, the bloody elevator visual, Mm -hmm. and then comes back a year later to do the rest of it. She did an entire score for that film. Would you be surprised to find out that almost none of it's in the film? Wow. No, I, why would they have cut that? that that's uh, so, sucks. Okay. Now you have to tell us. So this isn't like a, a negative falling out or anything, at least. I mean, she actually posthumously did a portrait of Stanley Kubrick after his death. It's on her website. It's pretty cool. This actually mimics something that Kubrick had done previously on 2001, A Space Odyssey. So I thought that was really interesting. There was a a composer named Alex North who was doing all of his own music. And Kubrick was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And that guy finds out at a movie premiere that his soundtrack is not in the movie. Kind of like when we talked about the terrible son of a Nazi who did Vigo the Carpathian finding out it wasn't his voice. That kind of what? Carlos basically had the same thing. The music when they're approaching the overlook when they're in the car, the da da da. That's that is her contribution to the final film because Kubrick changed it so significantly. So, so that's her then. That part, or it's not. Yes, that part. Okay, is, that part is. Which is you know that is a recreation of the um, God damn it, Dirge Dire. Why can't I think of it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Sounds like you're about to recite the Necronomicon. Uh, <laughs> God, you guys are just letting me look like an idiot. Nobody's going to save I, me. I, I, for. I, hold on. I've got Google. Give me a second. Save me from myself. Dias is Iraye. Thank you. Jesus Christ. It's the song Dias Rocky Mountains. I'm sorry, but the, the sun is coming in my face now. What so was I that? Gotta, I can't even. <laughs> the, the cream covered mushrooms a couple weeks ago, and now oh, the, the sun this time. Hey, the Jesus lady. This is as good as the original. I like the first joke better, but that one was good. So, you know, made the crowd uh, happy. Um, so, okay. Not to go off topic, but did you notice that the remake of Cabin Fever opens up with that same song? Mm. And so when I heard that, I turned it off. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> like, oh, you've never seen that movie? No, I've seen Cabin Fever, Eli Roth's first Cabin Fever, but they remade it with the same script, exact same script. But I stopped watching yeah. it because the beginning of them driving to the cabin, they had the shining music at the, at the beginning of the movie. And I said, well, fuck this. Yeah, it was I stupid. It I think that was like Eli Roth's uh, self-indulgence on, on that. Yeah, he did it. Yeah, that fucker. Yeah, he's he's oh. trying to be like, I'm, I'm like movies, Elon Musk. I know, but I, I love him. Don't don't get me wrong. I do love him, but that that annoyed me. Anyways, moving on. Sorry. Well, I think it's a, that is a very important note uh, that you can, with music especially, mimicry and recreation is heralded in a different way than when it comes to like visual recreation. And I think it's because music sticks with you so much harder, mm-hmm. right? Like if you see a shot that pans similarly or that's framed similarly, very rarely are you going to go unless like you could see certain deliberate cues. A lot of people will disregard that or might not really. But when you hear music, oh, my God, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the brilliant elements of doing Switched on Bach, which is, hey, you know these songs. Now hear them this way. Uh, So, yeah, her that deus is irae. I don't know how to pronounce it. I am not Latin. Language is dead for a reason appears in a lot of horror films. So if you would like us to do an entire episode based on it, we probably could. Shall Mm -hmm. I continue? So like when I hear it, I turn off the movie and I never finish it. (laughs) Oh, uh, it it appears in Metropolis, which is a silent film, which we had talked about previously. Robocop, 
whatever. It's a Wonderful Life, Clockwork Orange, The Omen, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Wars, Big Trouble Little China, Batman Returns, Jurassic Park, Nightmare Before Christmas, Mars Attacks, which <gasps> we'll be doing sometime soon, The Ring, <sighs> Game of Thrones, Crimson Peak, Ten Cloverfield Lane, Colossal, Pirates of the Caribbean, a bunch of shit. Uh, so yeah, that's something, it's very familiar, it invokes, the, you can get into like phonic health and you can find out how it like physically affects you but we'll just move on uh, of all the parts to keep thank god he kept that because that is like it sets the fucking movie you know like it sets everything in the movie so uh from there ends up doing tron has a relatively negative experience and then doesn't really contribute to mainstream films any further she did like soundtracks for like clips and stuff for commercials and other like organizations unicef being one of them and um yeah pretty cool what are your thoughts on that four, four dun, 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 the dss ray from the shining Oh, I think it's great. When I mean, when I hear that song in multiple movies and stuff, um, it still harkens back to The Shining. So for me, it, you know, she, she did a great job on that because that's what it, that's what it sticks with him the most. So anytime I hear that, like you said, when you bring up Cabin Fever, uh, it's just The Shining. And even though it's not an original thing from The Shining, like they're not the ones that invented it. That's always what harkens back. So it stuck with me. Well, but I assume that she changed the sound of it, though. Correct. Well, she had to create each of the tones that were used. Okay, so which is amazing. So, but so then that would be like a like a, her her thing. That would be her version of it. Her version, correct. So that would also mean if you're using her version in other films, or are they using the original version? Because the Cabin Fever one uses the version from The Shining. That's what I'm saying. So what they're doing is they are using the notes okay. very often. She created the tones that were used and used it in her. So like this is the way the synthesizer worked. You would have to plot it out and program in very sophisticatedly and do all of these things. Uh, David Bowie was pretty famous at this time for taking synthesizers and throwing out the manual and be like, what's going to happen? Let's just fuck around. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what happens when you don't sleep because you're on lots of cocaine. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of David Bowie, but it's absolutely true. But he's so pretty. <laughs> Those riding pants in uh, the labyrinth can ride oh me all goddamn day. Uh, you should have seen his night. crash so in 4K. I mean, the, it should have got its own credits. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yes, it should. Hoggle, played by small woman. David Bowie's Bulge, played by God himself. Woo! Oh. I believe that. I don't know if a Ric Flair woo was really appropriate <laughs> there, but, you know, why not? When in Rome, right, gang? <laughs> but uh, Carlos was also a photographer and an artist, so you can check that out. WendyCarlos.com has a bunch of collections. Like, she did pastels and oils and sketches and stuff. She did the pencil sketch of Kubrick, like I mentioned. And what's really cool... She does a great job of chronicling her works on that website. It looks a little bit dated. Yeah. So at first I was like, oh, this, you know, this is right. I thought it right. was so then, not fake, this website? No, it's actually hers. Oh, yeah. okay. That's where the comments on the biography are posted and stuff. Yeah. And, I Well, that, yeah. I saw it there and I saw it on a few other things, but it looks like a MySpace page. And I was just, I was taken yeah. back. It's funny. When you, when you <laughs> sent me the link, I looked at it and uh, it's, it's weird. You know what smell came to me? Like old shag carpet. Like, I'm like, how do I smell okay. old shag I carpet see like in this post? <laughs> That's what it felt like. You know when you go to like grandma's house or something? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is dated. It's dated. But it looks like a cat's butt, like the little designs I'm looking at right now. But it's like uh, the episode of Bob's Burgers when she like draws all the, butts, all the butts, yeah. buttholes. <laughs> yeah, that's what like those little things look like in the background. So maybe that's Oh, yeah, on that page. Yeah. I was looking at the page with the hieroglyphs because she does cute things of like, hey, this is the lost and undiscovered stuff. That's the page I was on where I was talking oh, about the okay. stuff that didn't exist. Okay, yeah. I know. I said, so, anyways, go on. Sorry. No, you... No, no. I just when I when I went there, I I got like I was unsure if that was that this page was real. So I'm glad that we found out that it isn't. So people want to go look at it. It's WendyCarlos.com. It is a real site. So I and so then after that, I kind of got deterred from looking for anything else because I wasn't sure what was correct or what wasn't. If you go to the bottom of the page, it actually has a. Oh. It talks about it being a living page that will never be finished. It will always be a work in progress. And so it's interesting because it has these landing pages, but it, it doesn't have like a news feed like we've become so accustomed to. Uh, but it's cool. I really I used it a lot for research after I was researching with other things because I wanted to be true to her because she seems to have had conflict with individuals in the past. She actually has a section of the website, ouch, a short list of the cruel hall of shame uh, where you can get black leaf awards. And I really hope we don't end up in that category. And I can't blame her for it because I mean, you imagine that you become a lightning rod, both positive and negative people saying that you said things or or heralding you for certain things or people just condemning you because you have to keep in mind, like when she revealed who she was and was living as Wendy Carlos, she was still being threatened and catcalled and, and, and subject of criticism. And so that's what makes the whole, the fact that she had to kind of readdress Walter in the fact that that's what Switched on Bach was released under. She did an interview, she doesn't do a whole lot of them. She did one for Playboy magazine where they addressed that, you know, moving forward, everything was going to be Wendy and they were going to start re- whenever re-releasing, releasing under Wendy, which I think is very important to clarify. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know that Naming rights can be very difficult. I have accidentally referred to people by their original name and not thinking about it. And, you know, it's guilt that I hold today from like 10 years ago because I can only imagine what it's like. It's, it, you know, imagine you guys like if you call me Jacob and I've told you that I'm Jake, like that's a mild annoyance, but that's not like anywhere near. Like I just don't have relative experience to be able to espouse like how hard it is for so many trans people. No, I agree. I agree. And and the sad thing is too. Imagine what she probably had to to deal with back then. That I mean, people still deal with now. But I feel like now there's, and we talked about this before, that there's more of a community that that you can find now that you can you can be accepted in, right? What did they have back then? Mm-hmm. So I, I can imagine this probably jaded this person in some way or form. Just, you know, looking at the world a certain way, especially trying to, to, to be true, to live your own truth and be this amazing artist that she was. And then to have Kubrick completely throw out everything you did, I, I, I can imagine. And then whatever negativity came with Tron, I know that you mentioned that earlier. I can only imagine like just the just I don't know. This just kind of sucks. Sucks for her. I wish she had better. Yeah. But she owned it, you know, mm-hmm. and she controls her narrative and she makes sure that, you know, while she's not necessarily a character in the public eye, she does it to whatever extent she's comfortable with set her side of things. Which I think is, is very admirable because, again, it's like a lightning rod. The, she had talked about, if I'm not mistaken, on the website that about 96 percent of it was positive and about 4 percent was about hatred, which 
the just the 4%. Think about it. Like a lot of people are very cruel to content creators and stuff. And they're like, fuck you. This sucks. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, okay, imagine we're in a room and a hundred people line up and say, hey, you know what? Good job. And one person says, fuck you. And do you think that person honestly is not going to remember the one person? Or do you think they remember the 83rd person who said good job? Or the 43rd person who said good job? I hope my point there is clear. Like the negative voice that you have can have a much more dire and lasting impact than the positive voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, fact, we should be lifting each other up and complimenting, especially if somebody who's created the kind of works that she has. Uh, so I highly recommend going back and enjoying all of her works. She had several albums that were studio albums all the way through 1998. You can find them on the interwebs, but like I said, not on Spotify. Now, Another person whose old work I appreciate, maybe doesn't go back as far as 1968, but does go back to the 80s. Jennifer Aspinall. She did the creation of Toxic Avenger, Toxie. And actually, we talk about how she rejoined Mark Torgel in Toxic 2-2 years later. She also did Street Trash, all of these movies that we love. But she's still putting out good shit. Now, we've been working on trying to get this interview for a while because she's so fucking busy making great, cool shit. She's working on Westworld, which is coming out, and I'm very excited about this interview. So please enjoy my chat with one Jennifer Espinal. <laughs> this is Slashers, at least the interview portion of the show. I'm not entirely introduced, sure how to introduce. My name is Jake. With me for the first time is my new best friend, Jennifer Aspinall. How are you this afternoon? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you. I have been wanting to have you on the show since we we covered Street Trash two years ago. We've done some Toxic Avenger stuff. And it seems like you have developed through your career and followed all of my interests. We have superheroes. We have sketch comedy. We have horror. How is life for you? Are you enjoying the, the diversity of your workflow? I think I'm very blessed. I started in theater and have pretty much covered everything in our industry from effects to beauty makeup. So for me, I think that's what keeps it really interesting. And luckily I still have a passion for it, but I think that's why, because I get to do everything. Yeah. And I had the pleasure of watching actually one of your kind of lectures where you were talking about the process that you go through and you very much strike me as, you know, a person of craft. Um, I had heard you talk about investing in the script and reading it and knowing the character and kind of how that involves the physicality, the emotion and all those things. Can you kind of walk us through that process and how it might be different from, you know, the stage to the silver screen? Well, I think it always starts with the script. I mean, part of our job is to make the actor and the director's vision come to life. And we're there to assist in that process. So for me, it always goes back to reading, obviously reading the script, deducing what character movements the character has has throughout the script and then meeting with the director and the producer and the um, actor and deciding what they want to see and then doing the best I can do to interpret what they want and then adding whatever details and craft I can bring to it. So it's it's really such a collaborative art form, but um, ultimately when you're producing um, anything from theater to to film, it's it's uh, a commercial art. So we are 
really have to honor the the writer, producer, director, and the actor. So our job is really, again, to go back and look at the character through the script, have conversations and decide what, you know, what's going to make the actor feel comfortable, what what's going to make the money man feel comfortable, all of those details, and then do it to the best of our ability and to make the illusion as seamless as possible with all of the restrictions and all of the direction that we get from uh, the script. And then obviously through these conversations. So um, again, it always goes back to the script though, because usually the writer already has the character in mind. Obviously he's taking the character's journey or he's creating the character's journey. So that's our jumping off point. So everybody gets the script, everybody reads the script and then everybody discusses the script and then we build from there. So it's sort of, um, I guess it depends on the show, what, what process happens first. Sometimes I, we always get the script, but then sometimes we'll have conversations with the director before the, we talk to the actor. Sometimes I'll know the actor, so I'll be able to connect with the actor beforehand. And sometimes I get reached out to by the actor and, and, and have a conversation prior to even getting the script and and then move forward after the script. So I guess it I guess to answer your question, it happens all different ways, yeah. but it obviously starts with the writing and obviously starts with the creation of that character in that particular storyline. So does that help? <laughs> it does. Well, yeah, because I mean you're an artist. I, I watched you as you were doing your color swaths and everything, and I've seen your craft. I mean, Picasso never had to worry about the ego of his canvas, right? And so you have uh, everything is contingent. And I, and I love the interconnectivity of what you described because the money man's obviously going to see the dailies and be critical. The directors of everybody has their own, for lack of a better term, self-interest. And I feel like you know, you have a very similar presence in the film or project as my your our mutual friend mark torgel who you worked with on toxic avenger and toxic tutu you know he is a film editor now and we talked about you know you only really notice editing when it's completely fucked and a lot of makeups you notice when it's like oh that's bad but at your best people largely disregard it so you kind of get the best you know i guess the giving nature of kind of the craft uh, when it comes to actors who reach out to you first does that really help you invest in it or is it just the thrill of the kind of craft itself well like i said i'm i'm lucky to still love what i do and yeah. and when when i go back to it it's really about the art of illusion and creating that illusion to the best of my ability with whatever restrictions I have. If an actor reaches out, of course, it's lovely because generally I have a relationship with them and more of a friendship level. Otherwise they wouldn't be calling me, but, but, um, but it doesn't, it doesn't shift how I present it in my own mind, because anything I get to do, I kind of, I'm one of those people that I give it a hundred percent and I, you know, do the best I can do with whatever restrictions we have. And, and my own personal life, it's just, that's my own, my own sense of integrity and art. So I don't really, you know, I don't think it's an investment. It's an investment. If I have the job for whatever reason, whether it's, 
you know, just because I'm there for a day or whether I'm there for a whole film. But I think I'm uh, again, it's always lovely to be working with people, you know, and you like and you respect. Um, so generally the people that call me, I, I really have a lot of respect for. So that's always a, a plus. And and, you know, you're going to create together really well because you've done it in the past. So that's always fun. But yeah, it doesn't, you know, again, it doesn't matter for me personally as an artist. I'm, I'm there 100 percent. So um, sometimes to my own personal detriment. But, yeah. um, you know, that's, you know, this kind of this kind of business, you have to really love it. And I'm sure everybody you've ever talked to that's had a real, you know, any kind of career, um, it's really hard. It's a really yeah. hard business. It's hard to get into. It's hard to stay alive. It's hard to survive it. It's hard to do it on a daily basis. The hours are long, the equipment's heavy and you have to really love it. So again, it always goes back to your sense of passion. And, and for me, my sense of passion and integrity, and it doesn't, it, it, it's, um, it kind of doesn't matter whether I'm doing just a regular straight makeup or something more, you know, substantial. But again, I think you have to really love it. So I guess that's a roundabout answer to saying, I guess it doesn't matter how I get there. I, don't, I guess it doesn't matter if somebody calls me or if I just get a call out of the blue, because, yeah. you know, it, again, I, I like and I love what I do. And I'm lucky. I consider myself lucky and grateful to be doing it for so many years. So. Yeah, and I really love that you keep talking about the the resources at hand, the restrictions that are available. Because if if we had infinite time and resources, art would be a completely different ethereal, incorporeal beast where we would never have to deal with subjective representation. It would just be in perpetuity forever. But it's very practical to have to look at what you have available, the timetable, things. Mm -hmm. You worked on Mad TV for a, a while, and that I imagine your budget was just geez, Louise. Yeah, from the very first day of that show to the very last day. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I was like, I felt very lucky to be part of something from the beginning to the end. It was cool. And I imagine that budgetary restrictions were huge. Yeah. Time was huge. You need people who are using yeah. like. I imagine that Bobby Lee needs a lot of mobility in his face when you're putting makeup on, right? Like, there's a lot of stuff I imagine are very difficult. Bobby Lee's a whole separate chapter on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, I don't doubt it. I've listened to some Tiger Belly. He seems like a very interesting yeah. character. He's he's a big character, and he was going through a lot of stuff when he was on mad. So it was, it was sort of, you know, a whole nother. Yeah. <laughs> he is not the character he is now. He was a different character, <laughs> but anyway, yes, yeah. I think, I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm not a person that creates in chaos, but I do think that restrictions are necessary on a certain level. Yeah. And for me, I like those restrictions because they do force me to create in a certain way. And, and that doesn't matter whether it's money or time. A lot of times it's both. And especially yeah. nowadays it's gotten worse and worse and worse. I've been doing this for close to 45 years and it's just gotten more and more condensed. Yeah. So you, you know, you you have to learn how to work within that those boundaries and again i think because i've been doing it for so long and i still like it i find those things um not helpful but but okay to deal with i'm not okay. stressed out by them I, I i have a lot of colleagues who aren't happy when they get those kind of things because it it in their mind dictates a certain level of of 
quality that they can produce. Yeah. But at a certain point, it becomes, again, I, I grew up with two par- parents who were artists, but they were commercial artists. And living within deadlines and understanding those kind of restrictions um, is part of what this job is. It's yeah. If you want to create art, then you need to go away and get a studio and just create art. This is an art form for someone else's um vision. So yeah. you have to be flexible to work in those kind of restrictions. And for me, I've taken them on as personal challenges and there's certain things that I can do in my sleep. So I can do things fairly quickly because my, because of my experience level with certain, certain kinds of restrictions. And also because I, the way my brain is wired, not everybody's brain is wired to think quickly. And, and uh, some people have to try thousands of different things to get to the end. I'm not that that guy. I, I, I'm, I'm within the first 10 minutes, I generally have nailed what my process is going to be. So I've already decided by the time I finish the script, how I'm going to do something. So I'm, I'm just built that way. And that's not the case with, I have several friends who, who spend a lot of time trying different things and trying to come up with different things and not trying to come up with different illusions, but trying to almost reinvent the wheel. And yeah. for me, I don't have time for that. So I mean, most of the time, most of my experience is not having the luxury of having that time. So therefore my brain doesn't need it or want it. And, and so I function better if I just let myself make my choices quickly and move forward. But that's everybody's artistic process is different. I've worked with directors and producers who love drama and chaos, and that's the way they create. I like activity. I have to create in, in process. I have to be in with other energies, with other people or with, with noise on the street, or I live on an alley and it's very helpful for me because it reminds me of New York. So I hear traffic and all of this. So I create better when I have that kind of noise, but some people have to be silent and, and everybody's process is different. So I think it's, um, I think I'm very, I find myself very lucky in the situation that nowadays things have gotten more and more time restricted and more and more financially restrictive because of a whole lot of things that, again, is another podcast. And if you ever want to talk about it, I'm happy to. For sure. our, our business has transformed from, from you know, the 1930s to now. A whole lot of things have happened that created our union and created our industry and then created a, a different subsections of our industry. So it, uh, makeup and hair. It's gone through so many transformations in the 100 years that it... Um, if you can't be adaptable, you kind of have to like everything else on the planet, you, you will die. So you have to be adaptable. So I feel blessed that I, my wiring is okay with those kind of transformations that we're in now where everything is fast and everything is at last minute and everything is cheap and yeah. you know that kind of thing. So. Well, and, you know, it doesn't compromise your art to have to do things on a timetable or do things on a. I think if anything that that lifts you up and shows the nature of your craft, the fact that you can do things within restrictions without. I mean, like I, we're kind of going back to if you had an infinite amount of resources, everybody should be able to be Picasso. If you have in perpetuity forever, you could sit and work on one project. By the end of it, everybody should be perfect. So I think that when you're having to take your shot, like you're talking about with the chaos, that's a huge element of your craft. Now, let me ask you, you know, we're talking about the change of the entire culture of everything. You know, people have tattoos of your work going back all the way, you know, toxic Avengers, street trash. And 
is it frustrating to you? Like, I see a lot of push for creator-owned content and distribution and residuals. And when was the last time you saw a dime from any of those kinds of projects, if I may be both so bold? Oh, not a, nothing, nothing. I mean, but, you know, again, and, you know, I like I said, I grew up with commercial artists as parents. Yeah. So I have no expectation of getting compensated for anything past the day's work where a lot of people... M- do and and I did I did reach out at one point when the Toxic Avenger was turning into dolls because yeah. I I did feel like I and I know that I've talked to Lloyd uh, since but I I mean it, I do feel like I created that character from scratch and that is my character and he's yeah. my baby and I feel very protective of him and he single-handedly probably gave me the career that I have at this point. So I'm very grateful for those guys and that character. I think that uh, Lloyd Kaufman and and Michael were lawyers and they were very clear that there was going to be no, you know, you got paid for your, you, I didn't get paid, but <laughs> I yeah. signed a contract. I got my $200 for doing the whole thing and spent $500 to eat and survive during the whole thing. And, yeah. you know, clearly I lost money, but at the same time, I, I feel like, you know, you don't do things in life just for financial compensation. I don't. I, I mean, yeah. I, I will always have money coming in because I think I come from a place where I trust that the universe will provide for me. And, you know, financially, you have to be smart and conscious. And again, a whole nother conversation that I'm very passionate about is is financial awareness and consciousness and, and being proactive as a kid with finances and that kind of stuff. But if you do things only for the money, then you're not really coming from a place of heart and you're coming from a place of fear. And I don't really operate like that. So I think the fact that the fact that Lloyd Kaufman has a gargoyle on the top of his brownstone of the toxic Avenger is more compensation for me emotionally than finance, you know, than, than the financial would have been. So it's, it's an amazing thing for me to think that in New York City, there's a brownstone with a creature that I created. And that, again, touches me more than the finances would ever touch me. So I, you know, I think it's interesting that people have tattoos. I would love to see some. I'm sure I could Google it. I never. I'll send you my my co-host Doug has a tattoo of Doxy. Oh, yeah. I have never even thought about that. So I'm I'm touched and i really hope they copied the first one and not the other ones because i'm kind of you know no offense to the guys who copied the first one but i i still think i like mine better but um because i tend to be more realistic than than cartoony but um anyway that's, I've always wanted to get Melvin cool. transferring into Toxy, but you know, my tattoo artist during quarantine moved to Indiana. And so oh, no. I've been, I have like, I started a second sleeve. Well, I mean, I already have the top and then I, I go to the wrist. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm going to work my, my wrist back up to my shoulder and armpit. And then she moved and I was like, well, shit. So uh, I will very likely be in well, Doug's. Well, you should hit me up for the storyboards then. I would love that. Literally, you should, you should put would, the storyboards on you. That would be hysterical. I literally, I will make a, a verbal contract with you right now. If you provide <laughs> me with the storyboards, I swear on my life. I swear on okay. both of my ugly children. I'm just kidding. They're cute kids. I, both of their lives. I will do that. That sounds amazing. That's hysterical. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Absolutely. Yeah. I actually call my son Toxie sometimes because he drools and just he's goopy and stuff. Uh, So it reminds me so I saw that movie when I was like three and it shaped my life. 
do you have people come up to you and tell you like how integral your work is to like the essence of their being? Cause I don't think I get to be a podcast host and everything talking about horror movies. If I don't have stuff like Toxie when I'm a kid, like that was the formative element of me loving cult cinema and going beyond what was, you know, I mean, I like, obviously like shit like Robocop, but then finding mm-hmm. this was like, it was as if I found a new language that only I spoke um, until I was able to find the internet and connect with all these people who had the exact same story of watching a thing way too young and being isolated. And then we oh, connect over awesome. it. It's crazy. Well, I'm I'm happy that you had such a I hopefully positive reaction. Um, um, yeah, you know it's funny. I I have done conventions and I have had people come and talk about this, and I, I think it's really it seems like it affected you in a very deep way. So that's yeah. I guess awesome, um, and and obviously stimulated your creativity. So that's even For more sure. awesome because I feel like that's part of my higher purpose on the planet is to inspire. So I, I'm really, you know, thank you for saying it and thank you for giving me that gift. Um, but uh, you know, it's, it is interesting, isn't it? You never know what you're going to be touched by or inspired by or, or moved by. And, and that's part of, um, the groovy thing about art. I think, you know, it's like, we have to keep putting whatever speaks to us out there because you will find your tribe and you will find those people that resonate in the same way. Um, I, I, I don't know what it is that spoke. I would love to know what you feel like it moved in you because I mean, it it was a big deal for me. This movie was a very big deal. I was 19 years old. My father had just died. I mean, I, this was a big transition for me and it opened up a whole lot of other things in my life. And, and it was, so it was a very important time for me. So it's very interesting to hear that other people were being influenced by it from a different direction. So that was, that's always kind of cool, but you know, yeah, I, I, I don't have, um, I mean, like I said, I have had people talk about it at conventions and stuff. So again, I'm just humbled and honored because I think, uh, you know, the best thing we can do is help and inspire people on the planet. So no matter how it gets to you or how many, you know, how it goes out there in the world, yeah. that's awesome. And, uh, you know, here we are, uh, how many years later having this conversation, which will I- inevitably inspire us both to another place as well. So that's even more beautiful. You know, it's another circle. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. You, you literally informed my art style when I was a kid. I think I've talked about this in the show, but I remember drawing from my dad, two mutants tearing a man apart and his entrails sp- spelled, I love you, dad. And I remember him looking at me like I was some grotesque thing growing on the underside of his foot. And, but it was still like, it never slowed me. Like I kept being that gross goon and like, honestly going back and even street trash. I mean, Jesus Christ, what you're able to achieve both of those movies. If you give me the premise, the elevator pitch, I'm like, I'm not buying it. It's that's just the Hulk. That's just something, but your art transcends it and makes it something where it's like, I have seen tattoos. I have seen people, Blu-rays, midnight screenings where people need to keep this alive to show what you did. I mean, it's so cool to me. Like yeah. you're literally like a living legend. And I don't mean that to just blow smoke. Like truly your work is amazing. And your work that you're still putting out now is also amazing. Like Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff. Like it's so cool what you're able to achieve. Yeah. I don't have a question for that. I just need to compliment well. you because you're badass. No, well, I, I'm just saying, thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm honored. I mean, that's really, really sweet. I can die now. 
Not yet. I I actually do have a couple of questions, though. (laughs) No, you know, the the gods will keep me here longer, I'm sure. Um, But uh, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, you know, yeah, truly, that's really sweet. And I really I wish my parents were still here to hear that because they would have loved to have known that they created someone that that was helping people (laughs) or or inspiring people. Yeah. (laughs) So my 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 uh, I have a family of teachers. My 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 father was a teacher during World War II and and uh, over in India and, and China. And my my aunt and my mom were all teachers. So we come from a place of giving in that yeah. way. So um, yeah, so that's really cool. And as an artist, it's cool. It's nice to hear because again, I I'm not really good at being. Um, I. I I remember when I was first starting, there were lots of different, um, well, a few years into it, because I was really there when it really first started back in the 70s and 80s, yeah. early 80s. So it was sort of the whole makeup effects thing hadn't really quite formed into its own uh, identity until, you know, after 83 and and uh, all the change heads that Rick did and everything. So th- from that point on, it became an, a, a force to be reckoned with. But uh, as an artist, I remember thinking, you know, seeing people that I admired doing things but those people weren't makeup effects artists. Those people were, were sculptors and artists and, and painters. And, and um, there was an artist in New York who was doing extremely oversized room sized portraits of, of people in resin. And his art was so moving and so beautiful that I remember thinking if I could just capture art in that way with any of these kind of characters and I, that was right before Toxic Avenger, actually, and that I was friends with this guy named Dean Howell, and he had a studio, and and um, he knew he knew um, Dick Smith and and some other folks in the world, but um, uh, he was he was just you know the the um, the humanness coming through. So for me, a lot of the stuff I saw in the effects world in the beginning was a little too broad. Me, I still resonate with more realistic things as a big instead of cartoon characters so i my stuff has is has to be organic or has to feel organic anyway you know so that's sort of my my take on all of all of this kind of art form and and so it was kind of interesting feeling inadequate for many years because i couldn't get into these oversized cartoony characters so i went through a lot of um I don't know, self-doubt or whatever, because I was just never fitting into that whole world. So it's funny to hear some here here's years later that it didn't really matter because I was just trying to do my thing and yeah. trying to do it the best I could do it. And, you know, my style was a little different maybe um, than some of the guys. And your style, like that, the humanity and the, like, even if they're not human characters, like the essence of what you bring is so transcendent because I mean, let me tell you, like I'm a guy with a Captain America tattoo in 2000 comics, but I have fucking Marvel fatigue because so much of it's the same. <laughs> so, you know, so many of these things like, okay, that's this, this is the character who has the leather outfit. But like when you can see those characters where you can like kind of look and, and empathize with this character, that's completely, you know, basic might as well be from an interdimensional wormhole. I mean, it's so cool to me. Um, you, you had talked about researching with your actors and with the script before. What's your application process like? Is it because my mom's a cosmetologist, so she oh, has cool. hairstylist voice where she like, 
I could hear her voice when she's doing work because it's a different tone of voice. It's a lot of like interview style. Maybe that's why I learned how to do this bullshit. Uh, is that what your process is like or do you kind of let it speak for itself and let them come to you? How do you re- interact most often? You have to connect with the person you're working with because it's a yeah. very intimate intimate experience. I'm for sure. You're touching someone's face and or body, you know, you're very engaged with them. And you, you have to like a lot of when, when I've lectured before, I've always kind of put in, you know, we a lot of what we do is psychology. And some people come by that naturally and some people don't have it. I I I think I have it. So it's a it's a really it's a, learning to empathize with the person that you're working with and really being present with them. Because, again, I came from a place of this is a, a collaborative joint process and I'm here to make their character come to life for them Bingo. and help them bring their character to life. So my ego and I have to disappear. I have a really deep respect for the, the craft of acting and I've been lucky enough to be around some heavy hitter teachers back in the day and watching them work with actors and um, understanding that craft. And when you understand what the actor has to go through to get to where they need to be for their character, it makes it easier for someone in my position to just make sure we get out of the way and give them what they need to get to where they need to be. And um, again, that's part of our job. And sometimes, I mean, obviously we're doing it physically helping them, but we also have to do that emotionally and, and with our, with our energy, because we are the, we're the place that they usually end up processing and exactly. being in their creative process prior to going out on set or out into the theater. So we, we're that last stop by a stop off before they go and perform. So we have to be, very conscious, or at least I feel I have to be very conscious of making sure this is not about me. This is about them and giving them what they need. And sometimes they need, they need a sacred space as well as they need our, our art being put on their face or their body. So there's a lot of psychology involved with what we do and we have to make them feel safe. And we have to go through that process of getting them to trust us. And if it's a new relationship, it can take weeks before that trust shows up. And, and that's something that, you know, when you've done it a certain amount of years, you hopefully you can get that down into an afternoon where you get to know each other and you, you know, you're connecting and collaborating and then you can move forward. But there's, there's been oftentimes where the actor is in their own process and they're trying to figure it out. So it can take a little longer. So my point is part of a big part of our job is to be the energy that supports them prior to them getting out on set. So not only do we have to be artists, we have to be uh, a psychologist and, and empathize uh, people who can empathize and, and give them that space and that security and that safety and, and uh, it's really it, it happens a lot where people carry their own makeup and hair around with them because actors because they they have that trust and it's safer and it's easier because they're incredibly vulnerable when they're in a different character every show. So 
it's good to have people around you that can support you and, and, you know, you can trust and go through that vulnerability with. So, um, yeah, so the application process can take, you know, that's a big part of the application process. And then of course there's the technical aspects of it and the, the, the health aspects of it and all of nowadays, all the COVID aspects of it. So there's all that kind of, there's a lot to what we do. And I, I don't know whether people know that until they get into the trailer and they have to experience it. But um, yeah, there's a lot of different things that we we have to be pretty good at to stay around in this business. Yeah, my all time favorite TV show is Face Off. Not <laughs> a week goes by where I don't complain to my wife that there isn't Face Off or another show like Face Off that's ripped it off entirely. And I think the only failure of that show is that it doesn't go into the application process in the synergistic way that you're describing. Right. Because all of the, that person cares about is, is doing a strut on the runway and going, you know, I, I would love to see that interpersonal relationship that you have to develop with people because, you know, let's yeah. have an MMA fighter or a guy in a band or whatever. Pre-show jitters are a thing. And imagine yeah. all that nervous energy, but you have to sit perfectly still for 12 hours and then do the thing. I mean, that's a tremendous amount of stress to put on somebody. And basically it falls on you to do your craft amazingly, as well as nurture and facilitate, which I mean, you should get yeah. twice as much, I think. Okay. You put that into the contract. <laughs> I, I will accept it. I could probably negotiate that for you. <laughs> I will. Okay. We'll, we'll talk. There we'll we talk. Um, yeah, that, you're absolutely right. I don't know whether a show would be able to be able to handle that though, because that's a, that's something that most of those people on that show didn't have that yet anyway, because they're very young. Yeah. And I'm now in the field working with some of those folks. And, um, you know, they're it's it's something that has to you have to learn how to be that way. Again, most people, it doesn't come really naturally to um, a lot of people, especially in the last 10 years and especially since face off, you know, people want to be famous and they think this is a way to get famous. So. This is another quick, you know, Instagram thing because it's a visual art. So it doesn't, you know, the people that are any good at all of it will survive. The people that won't, that can't, won't survive. So it's like, okay, fine, whatever. But I don't think you could project that in a show unless you were doing a film about, you know, what we all go through on a day to day basis where you could actually see that develop because it's not something that's seen. It's something that's felt and you can you can see it and feel it when you're in the room, I think, with it. But on on the screen, it, it certainly wouldn't happen in a competition show because those people were you know, a, they were inexperienced. And I have a very good friend who was a model and damaged his damaged his eyes on that show, scarred his body on that show because those kids didn't know what they were doing and put wrong chemicals in their, their eyes. I mean, so you wouldn't really get it in that kind of, a, in that kind of a show because you don't really have people that are really experienced and they're rushing and they're trying to, to be, you know, I mean, they, the, unfortunately the producers made that look like we can do all of that in two days. And yeah. there's producers that have actually said to me, well, they do it on face off like oh, that. Geez. It's like, yeah, but that's a lie. Yeah. I mean, it's not real. Heavily edited. Right. I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's, and, and, well, they're also not, 
showing you all of the really bad edges and all of the really bad foam rubber that they had to produce to get it done in 24 hours. So it's, you know, there's, it's a, it's not, I, I mean, I, I thought there was a lot of amazing creativity that I saw on that show, but I, I wouldn't hold that up as a standard of what what's great in, in our industry. And, and interestingly enough, it has created its own genre of pieces and creatures. There's been a whole wave of perceived like visual correctness because of that thing, that, that TV show. And, and I mean, personally, again, certain things that became popular on that show that are now popular on TV aren't my thing. I, I'm yeah. not a big head creature person. Like it's just not my thing. So it's just, okay. I mean, I, I don't mind doing it and I like doing it every now and again, but it's not something that I seek out, but that show created a visual like Star Trek did back in the eighties where it created a visual that then became an industry standard that became like, every time we're going to do a creature, we're going to put a forehead with a nose piece on, right. or every time we're going to create a certain kind of creature, we're going to put a back of the head piece on. And there's really good reasons for that. It's fast. It's cheap. It's easy to like only apply here and not here. It's very, you know, it's, it's effective for a quick weekly situation. So anyway, Face Off has kind of picked up where that took off and and created a whole, you know, where I get people say, you know, can you do one of those things like on Face Off? And you're like, oh, interesting. Okay, Here's so it, you wish for because your your actor won't be able to turn their head or they. Well, it's just them. it's just the whole concept, which I think is really interesting that it became such its own visual look that people reference it. That you know, it's okay. I mean everything everything in its time and space and and everything has place and whatever it needs to be it's going to be so bless your heart for saying 80s for star trek by the way i'm a big tng the next generation fan so that's a yeah sweet spot now you had kind of touched on something with the instagram stuff that i wanted to kind of focus on because that kind of goes back to the earlier point of the discussion where we talk about the theoretical the person who has infinite resources you don't see the 12 hours that went into the eyeshadow. You don't see the three hours that went into the lighting or the touch-ups or whatever. And so theoretically, that person's you know art is very good. But practically, what you do is so like indistinguishably different. It's just it's bafflingly different to think of like the practical element of to work in the industry, right? Compared to just sitting at home taking what you can do what you can do on Instagram. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I guess, I guess that, um, I guess everybody wants to put out there what they think looks best. So they're not going to cop to the fact that they re-sculpted it 30 times or whatever, Yeah. or maybe they do. I don't, I don't really know. I don't follow a lot of makeup artists on Instagram. It's just not my thing. So, but you know, what I do see is that obviously Instagram is becoming a whole it's not becoming, it is a whole space and kind of genre unto itself and a very important part of our culture right now. So it's very important to know about it. But I think, you know, part of me is like, well, good for them for putting out their art. If that's again, their passion and that's speaking to them and they're putting out their creativity and they can do that. That's groovy. If they can't do it in real time in the real world, they won't survive. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. And, and, and again, art is art. And if it's speaking to them and they're putting it out there, even if I don't 
think it's great. They're coming from a, a creative space, then okay. I mean, I've spent a couple of time, a couple of long conversations with producers, convincing them that this Instagram tutorial that they watched on how to make a burn person isn't good <laughs> or isn't real yeah. or isn't easy. It's like, so I've, I'm a, we, we are running into it a little bit where it's fighting our world because you can't like, I can't convince these producers that what this Instagram kid did is not good. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, that's the standard now It's like, well, they can Google it so they can find it. And it's just, you know, look, they just did it in 30 seconds. So it becomes like this, it is creating a little bit of that in my, in our world, because we're like, well, that's not good. And, and it doesn't, and, and it's not really going to take that long. It's going to take two hours with prosthetics, not 15 minutes with a girl with, you know, her kitchen supplies again, yeah, right. great creativity, go for it. But when I get that for research sent to me by production, which has happened a lot in the last couple of years, it becomes like, okay, <laughs> I hope y'all can get a little better before you start Instagramming it and trying to teach it with little tutorials because people like me should be doing the tutorials, not them, but that's okay. Yeah, if I had the, not to invalidate anybody else's art, it's just like we were saying, it's a different thing. That's like it's a different welding thing. to basket weaving. What you're like, just the they, element of, of self-application versus applying to a different person is like, yeah, that in itself is definitely different. Like it's not yeah. fair to compare to for you. Yeah. I mean, that's even a whole nother thing. But yeah, so it's it's interesting time with all of that stuff. Again, there's no bad, you know, creativity showing up in the world in any form, in my opinion, is awesome and good. It can only be good. It means people are thinking, they're exploring, they're challenging themselves, whatever it is for their personal development. So that's awesome. You know, the flip side is there's a lower expectation from producers and people out there because they don't know what the real what's really possible or they're not willing to spend the money on what's really possible because that's good enough and that's good enough stuff gets really tiresome as a creative person because you're like well I don't want to do that that's good enough because that doesn't speak to me as an artist, nor is it even realistic and I'm I'm really right now just thinking about some burn makeups that I got had to do in the last two years where I got sent all the research I got sent that they liked was all Instagram tutorials. And I, and I, and I was like, but this is not even Googling the right thing. We need to Google burn victims, not how do you do burn makeups? I mean, I, I just something I ran into twice this last couple of years. And I don't know why it was both, it was burn victims. And, but it was like, I don't understand. So the quality has shifted a lot. The quality ex- expectation has shifted, but that can, that'll shift again too, because yeah, new things will show up and, you know, all of a sudden Kazu is getting a lot of press. So all of a sudden people want to do character makeup. So all of a sudden I get on projects where they're like, well, we want Kazu to do it because he will, he'll spend, do, he'll do this, that, and the other thing. And you're like, yeah, okay, well, Cool. You want to sit through six hours of prosthetics on a, on a, you know, a lower budget television show. That's cool that you want to do that, but Kazu isn't going to do it. A, the money and the time he does it at his, at his own schedule. And 
you know, he's coming from a different place. So, so it's a really, so that that's happened recently to me. And I thought, well, okay, so it's switching. There will always be places where the quality is, you know, respected and looked for, and there will always be people who don't see the quality, the value to the quality. So you kind of just, again, like I kind of came to in my own world years ago, you just have to do what speaks to you and, and do the best you can do. And if these restrictions come up and with my burn victim, I had to do a burn. I'm going to do it the best I can do it with the time that they give me. And it'll look better than the Instagram thing. And that's okay. You know, so you kind of just have to go, okay, well, if that's your idea of okay. Then God bless. I'm still doing it better, but that's okay. So. And you talking about like the length of time, like, just coordinating how long someone's going to sit in the chair, like the six hour Kazu makeup, like think about, especially now in COVID world where you're having to do rapid testing, and stuff. Yeah. just coordinating that has got to be exhausting. Do you have any kind of estimation as to how long your longest application was? That's a good question. Actually. I, I just, uh, I just finished it. I just handed off a five hour makeup job oh. to someone. Um, I just, uh, I think maybe, maybe, maybe five or six, six hours probably. And I don't, I think, I feel like that, you know, so many things come in around, you know, we try to keep them down to three, you know, that seems to be the average to try to keep it realistic. So even if things start off at five or six, they may come back to three by the, by the second week, once you get everything into a routine and you get another set of hands in there and, and all of that. Yeah. I think, I think maybe five or six hours. And that's with, you know, with the hair as well and everything. I do. um, I don't know if you looked on my website, there's a section called human vases and the human vases are, are things that I do for events. And, and uh, I do them in different countries to bring awareness to different causes and things. And I have a partner and she's a floral designer. Those makeups all take about six hours. They, they're all heavy body paint with lots of stones glued on them and, and, and big floral arrangements incorporated into the body and prosthetics and costumes. And generally those are like six hours by the time we get it all done. So even a, you know, even a non-prosthetic, although most of those have like ball caps and certain prosthetics on them, but even those kind of makeups can take a long time. Painting makeups can take a really long time. And they're absolutely yeah. beautiful. And so, yeah, shameless plug. I, I completely like pilfered your website, jenniferaspinall.com and, and looked at everything. Cool. I absolutely could. That's actually how I found the YouTube uh, tutorial that I watched, which again was really great. I really enjoyed oh, cool. it. Like, honestly, I made me, I kind of like, I wonder if I can get over to spirit Halloween stuff and get a couple uh makeup kits on my way home. Oh, that's cool. Yay. So yeah. Um, at this point I've kept you longer than I said I would. So is there okay. anything you'd like to plug uh, before I let you go? Because we've already contractually, we've committed to multiple conversations. <laughs> I'm going to be getting a tattoo of your work. So you'll be around, but is there anything? I'll be, I'll be in your life. I, obviously, I'll be in your life. And obviously, I'll be on you, yeah. um, which makes me really giggle. So, and I can't wait to tell my brother who also does tattoos. Oh, and, badass. Maybe yeah, you can and, do it. Where is he located? Hmm, um, he's in Pennsylvania. But we can talk. We'll talk yeah. about that later. Honestly, it might be the best vacation of my fucking life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think. I, well, again, we'll have that conversation. But uh, sure. yeah, that's cool. Um, n- n- what do I want to plug? <laughs> well, let's see. We didn't talk about my product. 
Oh, absolutely. I created a barrier lotion, I, uh, a skin protector. It's called Skin Saver. Back in the end of Mad TV, Jordan Peele, who um, is a friend of mine, and I'm very proud of him. He's done very well for himself. Yeah. He had a reaction to um, the medical version of a skin protector. And I had an opportunity to meet a... Um, meet a chemist and we decided to make this better barrier lotion to protect actors underneath their skin. I mean, underneath the prosthetics, you know, against all the glues and paints and stuff. So for the last like six years, I've had this product out and it's now become very popular and it's in most makeup kits in Hollywood and um, is now being sold all over the world. So that's exciting. Skinsaverlotion.com, correct? Insaverlotion.com. And we just came out with a sunblock version of it. So that's exciting. And um, yeah, that that's uh that's my shameless plug. Is uh that that that's um hopefully gonna go out to the public because it I, I I'm next year gonna work on putting that out in in different other different kinds of stores because it's really good. Um it protects against pollution. And those in it, those of us who live in cities should really be wearing it. And I'm I'm kind of coming to my health place here because it's kind of like uh it stops 90% of the pollution from getting into your liver. And that's a really big deal. So I really would love the public to get it because I think that it's it with all of the air pollution and and garbage we have floating around. If we can do anything to get to keep some of that garbage out of our bodies, I think that would be really amazing. So um, where I date myself and show that I'm not I'm not trendy. I'm an old cranky dad. I actually looked at it and one of the selling points was that it prevents uh, diaper rash. And I was like, Yes. Did you get some? I, I ordered some. Yeah. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Excellent. Because um, it like does. It's really yeah. good with your babies. It's really good for babies. Yeah. It's really not. It's because it protects like your, your skin becomes waterproof. So it, it keeps all the moisture out. So and it keeps all the vitamins and the aloe in. So it's very healing. So anyway, it's a good product. I'm happy I have it. Um, hopefully I can get it out to the real world at some point and put it out there. So. Oh yeah, and the anyway, there, there's my shameless this plug. episode, just like a link to your website. For- oh, okay, that'd be great. Yeah, Hell thank yeah. you, darling. <laughs> if you ever have anything else you want to plug, like when you, the sunblock version's out and everything, come on back. All righty. Showing a commercial for you. You've done a lot for me and my creative endeavors. Well, they, when we when we get to the the tattoo, we should videotape that. Hell yes, we should. Let's do that. Let's do that. I'll come with you, and we can like you know hold up the pictures of the and everything. That would be so amazing. cool. That would be really the good. Surreal experience of my life. And that I would be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yeah. All right, that all would right. be Thank great. You again, so much for making yourself available. I know we coordinated on this for a while and I know you have so much going on. I'm so excited for you and, and your endeavors. So anytime you want to come back, you absolutely have a Thank home. you. Like I said, we're, shoot, we're starting shooting up Westworld in a couple of weeks. So it'll be crazy for six months, but uh We'll meet up again after that. How about that? Party. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. And that was our talk with Jennifer Aspinall. I will be getting that tattoo as soon as I be getting those storyboards. And I would be remiss if I did not direct you to skinsaverlotion.com for skin saving lotion. Uh, that was one of the cool things we discussed. I'm very uh, proud of her and her endeavors. It, I will include links to everything in the episode description. Now, let's say I wanted to support Jennifer and I wanted to support Douglas. 
Doug, how would well, I do that? you can follow that? me at Doug Bizarro. That is my Instagram. And we also, uh, I host a show on Fridays at 8 p.m. Friday Night Action on Roku on B-Movie TV. So get to host uh, some pretty badass action exploitation films that are in uh, 480p quality. So load up on your OLED. It'll look great. And Jake's also on B-Movie TV as well, too. Saturday Night Terrors at 10 p.m. Bum, bum, bum. And let's say I want to support Jennifer. And I want to support Douglas and I want to support Adrian, etc. Adrian, how would I go about doing that? Well, you can always support us by following us on different social media. Uh, I'm on Instagram as pathologically ADE, but also more importantly, we have all of these new tiers on our Patreon right now at patreon.com slash slashers pod. We have tiers ranging from $1 to $10. So please go ahead and take a look at that. Or you can look on our Redbubble for some cool shit at slasherspod.redbubble.com. Perfect. So for these goons, I'd just like to say thank you all. Uh, I hope that you are enjoying Pride. I hope you're lifting people up and celebrating because honestly, it's an amazing month and, and I'm actually very excited by several other contributors and content creators. So please support where you can. Do what you can to, like I said, lift people. Last thing we want is to repress. And, you know, I've had some very specific conversations as far as like people kink shaming and being like, you shouldn't be able to dress like this at Pride or you shouldn't be able. If you're creating a positive place for people and you are lifting them up, I think that's a good thing. If they want to expose themselves, good. The fact that's what this is, is sometimes freedom of speech is controversial and that's what actually gets the attention. So you will never hear me say that somebody shouldn't do the things, especially somebody where you're celebrating not being repressed. Mm -hmm. Now, my name is Jake saying goodbye and good die. It is your boy, Cyber Slash 1000, introducing another hidden track. Did you know I'm going to be a t-shirt soon? Best be checking out that red bubble, son or daughter, or both, or whatever. This week's hidden track is I'm Alive by Vicious Dreams. I have to say, this is my favorite album art of any of our hidden tracks on this dumbass podcast. You can find them at viciousdreams.bandcamp.don't you know how the fuck googleworks.com. Yeah.